Well, good morning. If you remember, that's the same text we read last time I was here, back in October, I think. Um, but this morning, we'll specifically just be looking at verses 9 through 13, which would be the third temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Um, <clears throat> let me just uh, thank you for, for letting me preach here. I know it's a it's a, it's a sacred trust to be in somebody else's pulpit and in their church, um, which I, I'm thankful for that. I know through every difficult thing that the Lord does, he, he's always doing 10,000 other things in the background. Um, and, and I feel like one of those things that God's doing, even through a really difficult time of suffering for your church and the, and the leaves in particular, is he's building this, this partnership between Union Lake Baptist up in Commerce Township and Ambassador here. I mean, it's not even because of uh, Kelly's cancer that, that Joel's coming to preach and teach Sunday school next week. He's one of our missionaries sent out from Union Lake that you love and encourage and support. And um, we're, we're thankful for you helping us, us helping you, and this, this partnership in the gospel that we have that shows, you know, the, the kingdom's not divided between church here, church there, but we're all one family unified in the faith, and I think that brings much glory to God. Um, so let me, let me pray, and then we'll get started here in Luke chapter 4. Heavenly Father, you are our kind and our gracious and our perfect, loving Father. So I pray that through our time in your word that you would be glorified. I pray that you would be glorified as your Son is lifted up and worshipped, as we speak of him and we glory in him, as we gaze upon his goodness and his perfection. I pray that we would be uh, transformed to be more like him, that we would be strengthened in the midst of temptation, that we would be given his righteousness, that our lives would look like Christ. Lord, magnify yourself through your Son, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, while fatherhood, particularly God's fatherhood, certainly has to be more than protecting providing for your kids, giving them an inheritance. Fatherhood is never less than that, right? So when we come to the series of temptations to Jesus in the wilderness, what we see is, is Satan systematically, relentlessly attacking the fatherhood of God through what looks like strange sorts of temptations. Because what he does is he, te he seeks to take what God provides as father and separated from God actually being father. That is, he takes, he tempts Jesus to seek protection, provision, and inheritance apart from seeking God himself. Satan says, you know, if God's going to provide for you, why don't you just seek that provision instead and make bread? Don't trust God for food. Make it yourself. That's the first temptation. If God's going to give you an inheritance of nations, why don't you just seek that inheritance now and worship me for it 
instead of trusting your father to provide it for you. That's uh, the second temptation, which I, I didn't preach here, but um, I think that's okay to skip over that one. And, and third, if he's going to protect you, then go ahead and seek that protection. You can jump off the temple. You can take a leap of faith, if you will. And, and we'll look at that temptation this morning. Because what Satan wants Jesus and what Satan still wants us to do is to seek the gifts of God rather than seeking God himself. That's what these temptations are all about. They seem weird at first blush, but then we start to see this pattern in our lives every single day to separate what God, can, what God is happy to give from you know, seeking God as God. I mean, the devil, he, he constantly holds out these good, godly things before us, saying, you know, take, take these things, but take them apart from God who is happy to give them. I guess you could even say he's trying to reverse the order of creation, right? He says, you get to lead, and then God the Father follows suit. The Son has authority, not the father in these things, tell your dad what you want, and then he'll be forced to give it to you. But in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we get something better than just the gifts of God, right? We don't gain gifts, but by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, we gain a father, and as a result, we can trust that he is happy to provide us with every good and perfect thing that we need. Or, or let me say it this way. C.S. Lewis wrote, and uh, I think it was the book Surprised by Joy. Um, he wrote, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. We could say the message of the temptations is aim at God and you will get his gifts thrown in. Aim at his gifts and you'll get neither. So what we have is this, this exploitation of what God is happy to provide so that we can get it instead of getting him. It's, it's idolatry, right, at its core. Ignore the giver so that you can pursue the gift. Um, I mean, take the first one, for example, the turning the stones into bread, right? While God loves to feed and provide for his children, our demanding of a particular meal at a particular time instead of trusting our Father is sinful. It's arrogant. It, it's, it's wrong. We're like a toddler who's throwing a tantrum for a snack, but her dad won't give it to her because he's too busy pulling a prime rib out of the oven. Right? God wants to give us what's best. He's our father. So sometimes that means we go without our fruit snacks because he's laying before us a gourmet feast. That's a father being a good and kind father. But then the devil comes along and he starts whispering, what kind of dad won't give his poor kid fruit snacks? He owns everything. He's stingy. He's, he's unkind. He does not want what's best for you. you. You can't trust a father like this. You shouldn't worry about having God as your father. Worry about being fed. Don't concern yourself with God. Seek what he can give you. It's a temptation to separate God from the gifts of God to exalt our own wants and desires instead. And today we see the same thing in the area of vindication, or, or more specifically, in 
protection. It's this temptation that we encounter every day. So look at verse 9 with me here. Luke chapter 4, verse 9. <clears throat> and the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. This is probably somewhere on the back side of the temple. Uh, the temple was built, so it overlooked the Kidron Valley. So we're standing on the edge, probably with about a three to 400 foot drop below us into a valley, which surely is a dizzying experience for anyone um, standing on the roof, wind whipping through your hair, more than a football field between you and the ground. And the devil says to Jesus, all right, jump. Well, he doesn't say that exactly, right? You know, we, we don't trust the devil. Don't take his words at face value. More than just, you know, a taunt to jump, we have another attack on the fatherhood of God. We see this in verse 9, don't we? He says, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down from here. According to Satan, throwing yourself off the temple would prove that you are the son of God, right? He says, you've appealed to your father before. God being your father, he leads you. He provides for you. So prove it. Show me that God is your father. Show yourself that God is your father, that he will protect you. I mean, you think you're God's son, right? Let's see if the father thinks the same thing, because there's no way he'll let his son fall and die on the ground. But unlike the other two temptations, this third one doesn't just have a taunt. It comes, with a, it comes with a sermon. Look at verse 10. For it is written, this is the devil quoting scripture. He says, for, this is the reason you can jump. Psalm 91.11, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And then Psalm 91.12, next verse. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan knows scripture is a powerful weapon. He's going to fight with it as well. He's not going to fight fair, of course. So if I were to come, and instead of preaching Luke 4 this morning, I was going to preach Psalm 91, the same text that the devil chooses, here's how I would do it. I would, I would come up front, and then I would start with a story of being rescued. Um, maybe nothing too serious. Probably the time I was at Disney World, and I was, you know, not paying attention on the trolley tracks. The trolley's coming down the road. Um, I'm looking off at Donald Duck or whatever. And according to, you know, the camcorder from 1996, it just goes black as my dad kind of pushes me and tackles me out of the way of the trolley bearing down at five miles an hour. Um, something we can laugh about now, but we weren't laughing on the camcorder, I can tell you that much. Um, but then I would, I would transition and say, See, we all face dangers every single day. But this psalm, Psalm 91, it teaches for those of us who find our refuge in God, God will protect us in every situation with every resource that's at his divine disposal. And then I, I would spend you know, the bulk of the sermon proving that to you, walking systematically through 91. It's, it's a beautiful psalm. Verse 1 reads like this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Almighty will abide in the shelter of the Most High. And that Almighty Most High God will then deliver you from snares and pestilence. That's 91.3. Protect you under his wings and be your shield. Verse 4. Protect you day and night from every danger. Verse 5 and 6. While 
thousands are falling around you on the battlefield, you won't, for God will protect you. Only the evil around you will die, verse 7 and 8. No evil will be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent, verses 9 and 10. Angels even will guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up, that's 11. You will tread on lions and snakes. They won't harm you, verse 13. And the psalm ends with God himself speaking to this, what, this, this person in danger. I'll just read it. It's beautiful. God says, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So I would spend, you know, 20 minutes dangling these beautiful promises of protection before you. And then we come to verse 14, and I would snatch them away. I would comfort, and then I would take all of them. Because I'd say, you know, assuming you were in nine, Psalm 91, I'd say, look down at verse 14 again and point out the grammar here. It says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. Because he knows my name, I will protect him. And I would ask, which one of you has a love for God that's great enough that you're willing to stake your entire life, all of your protection, on your love of God? Is anybody's fickle love for God good enough for you to take that bet? Are any of you bold enough to stake your lives on your love for God? Think of, think of your life. Do you have a perfect love for God which earns God's protection of you? Uh, think of this week. Think of this morning, right? There's, there's a danger of just saying, oh, of course God's going to protect me from plague and from pestilence, from danger on every side. My love for God is so great, I know his name so perfectly that God has to protect me. No, there's a, there's a real danger here of coming to the promise of Psalm 91 and saying, yeah, that's for me. That, that, this, this is a psalm about me. Because the only person this is actually true about, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, is Jesus Christ. We can't take this promise as our own, but since Jesus has taken us as his own, now he gives us all the benefits of being God's children, which means we can have even more certainty of the promises of Psalm 91, not because it's based on our love for God, but because it's based on Jesus Christ's perfect love for God, his perfect relationship with him, and now it's applied to us. God's protection isn't based on our love that comes and goes, but on the perfect, righteous love of Jesus Christ. Through him, we have received the promise of Psalm 91 as our own, so we can have confidence in every situation, that God will protect us using every resource that's at his divine disposal. I mean, honestly, I'm about ready to give up on Luke and preach Psalm 91 instead. But, but the thing is, the devil would preach that psalm in a very similar way to me. He knew this was a psalm that pointed to Jesus Christ, that it was fulfilled in Christ, that, that it was Christ with the perfect love for the Father. So if anyone can depend on God's deliverance, God's protection, it's Jesus, right? 
And so the devil standing on the roof of the temple preaches an incredibly gospel-centered, Christ-centered sermon. And by doing so, offers Jesus a unique and an incredible opportunity. The devil's not saying, you know, don't trust God, don't trust the Bible. Rather, he's saying, show me how much you trust God. Show me how much you trust God's word. The devil's saying, vindicate the name of God. Prove the scriptures are true. Jump and God will protect you. I mean, just picture him standing on the roof of the temple with Jesus, throwing out taunt after taunt. When you're suffering on the cross, when you're rejected by your own people, when you have no place to rest your head, wouldn't it be nice to be able to look back on this moment, look back on the beginning of your ministry and say, God is for me. I saw this on the temple. I can believe this now. I can persevere in my ministry. So jump. The reason you can jump in the first place is because God's your father. The Bible's true. Jump to prove your faith. To stay here on the temple actually shows you don't actually believe the Bible. So jump. Why are you hesitating to step out on faith, Jesus? Don't you think that God loves you? You trusted him to feed you. You don't trust him to protect you, though? He promises it. I just, I just quoted the scripture. Jump. Do you want me to leave you alone? Do you want me to quit questioning God to your father? Then prove to me that he is. You want to quit questioning yourself? Prove it. Jump. Come on, Jesus. Faith over fear, right? What are you afraid of? Deep down, do you not actually trust God? Do you think the Bible's fault and that God doesn't care about you? Jump. And Jesus turns to the devil and he says, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus didn't need to jump to know that God was his father, that God would protect him, and God cared for him. He was already certain of this because he saw this truth by faith. He was certain in what God said, and his faith was more real to him than anything he could see by God protecting him from, from landing on the ground. He did not have to prove God's fatherhood through a forced sign or visible vindication. See, Satan, or Jesus knew what Satan was doing here. Satan wasn't tempting Jesus towards belief, but really it was, it was unbelief. It's not faith that puts God to the test, but hard-hearted unbelief. This whole sermon that, that Satan preached, it's just a masquerade. The mask looked like, you know, faithfulness to God, belief. But when you take off the disguise, it's just this ugly, hard-hearted unbelief. It was an evil desire for God to prove himself. Those who truly trust God don't seek after signs. They don't say, God, you have to come through and prove yourself right now. Rather, we let God lead as Father and we follow suit. When we test God, we become God, and it's he then who has to serve us. I mean, Jesus' quote here, you should not put the Lord your God to the test, it's from Deuteronomy, but it's a text that's, a, that's an arrow backwards, um, back into a scene laid out in Exodus 17. So, so in Exodus, God's people are making their way through the desert, um, 
on their way to Mount Sinai. And the Israelites set up camp in Rephidim, which is it's a place where there's no water to drink. Which, I mean, if you're, if you're in the desert and there's no water, that's a significant issue, is it not? And they got angry. They grumbled against Moses and the Lord and said, Did you bring us out of Egypt so that you could kill us with thirst in the desert? They sinfully tested God, saying, Right here, right now, God needs to prove if he is with us or not. And so Moses prays, and God tells him to strike a rock, and when he strikes the rock, a river of water gushes out to save the lives of his people. I mean, what a gracious God that we serve. It's not just like him that we sin and demand, and God comes forth with grace anyways. He provides the water and the proof that they desire, but even though God provided this episode um, because of it, Moses called that place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. And, and the Massa and Meribah kind of became shorthand throughout Scripture of, you know, testing the Lord. You see this come up a bunch of times, Psalm 95, um, which is quoted in Hebrews for one. It's, it's kind of this shorthand for testing. Is God with us or is he not? It's the... the you know, the place of demanding a sign. Well, not a sign. It's, it's Exodus 17. It's the place of demanding another sign, right? Because Exodus 16 is all about God raining down bread from heaven. That was a sign. Um, Exodus 15 ends with God making the bitter waters of, of uh, Meribah, of, nope, of Mara, drinkable. That was a sign. Exodus 15 begins with the song of Moses that celebrates God's deliverance through the Red Sea. That was a sign. If we want to back up farther than that, we have the pillars of cloud and fire, the Passover, the plagues. They had plenty of signs in the wilderness. Signs weren't their problem. The problem was hard, unbelieving hearts. And when we test God, we refuse to let God be God. Instead, we say, you know what? I'm in charge. I'm calling the shots here. God, you exist to serve me. So, so the general temptation here is to test the Father, to put it on God to prove if he's here or not. The specific way, of course, that the devil wanted Jesus to test God was by jumping and demanding protection. Um, and Satan tried to do that by you know, manipulating Scripture using God's character and his promises against him so that Jesus would put himself in charge and force the Father's hand in a given situation. But this temptation to reject God as king, I mean, it goes as far back as, as the Garden of Eden, right? It's, God doesn't know what's best for me. Let me force his hand in this because I surely know best. And it's a scheme that Satan hasn't given up on. You know why? Because it works. We fall for it all the time when Satan disguises hard-hearted unbelief as actual faith. When he tries to separate fatherly protection from the Father himself. Satan tried to get Jesus to disown the Father by demanding a sign, and he does the same for us. I mean, I guess it's kind of like if you're teaching your kid to ride a bike, right? You hold on to the back of their seat, you run along the street with them, and you do this because you're a dad who cares. You don't want your kid to crash. Or, I mean, you can use the psalm, right? We don't 
I'm going to hold you up with my right hand lest you strike your foot against the gravel. Um, but since you're holding the bike, well, if the kid says, okay, now I'm going to intentionally try to crash my bike because I want to, you know, see if you're really a good father or not. Are you really going to protect me here? Are you really strong enough? Do you really care about me? So it, it completely misses the point of what you're doing. You're his dad. Of course you care for him. You don't need him to intentionally put himself in danger so you can prove it. You're, you're there to protect him if he falls, not so he can purposefully test you. I mean, that's what the devil got wrong in his sermon of Jesus, right? And in his sermon from Psalm 91, he says, God's going to protect you, but you get to set the terms. Show off your authority, and God will back you up. Intentionally crash so that the Father has to come through for you. I guess you could say the devil took a psalm that's supposed to foster humble trusting, and he made it about arrogant testing, right? He took a promise of protection and made it the occasion of prideful presumption. That's the first big problem of his sermon, is he got the purpose of the psalm all wrong. But the second problem, of course, is that Satan is only focusing on the here and now of God's protection, which we do all the time. But God has more of a, a long view in mind. God wants what's best for us. He wants our ultimate joy and satisfaction. He doesn't give us snacks while he's preparing a feast. Maybe he even lets us skin our knee so that we can get the freedom of being able to ride a bike. Listen, faithful Christians suffer all the time. We know this. Your church knows this especially well. Does that mean Psalm 91 is untrue? Of course not. We can absolutely trust God to protect us and rescue us from evil and from suffering, but we shouldn't presume that that rescue will come on our own terms or on our own timeline. Sometimes it comes through death. Sometimes it comes after it. You know, I stand by what I said. Psalm 91 teaches that for those who find their refuge in God, God will protect them in every situation using every resource that's at his sovereign divine disposal. But we don't get to dictate how God does that. We, we don't get to dictate how God protects us. We, we shouldn't think that it's always our way in this life. I mean, we, we are so tempted to think, if my life's going well, that means God is blessing me. If my life isn't, that means God has forsaken me. But what we need to believe is that whether my life is going well or not, God is blessing me if I am his child. He isn't allowing any ultimate evil to befall me, though he may use lesser evils to do me ultimate good. I mean, the pain that we feel in this life, it's always the pain of a surgeon's scalpel. Or, or to use a biblical metaphor, it's the pain of childbirth, right? It's a pain that's not ultimate, but rather it's leading to life. It's the means to bringing life and vitality. So if plague comes near my tent, if I'm attacked by lion or viper, or whatever the, the promise I want to take from Psalm 91 is, it's not because God's unfaithful, that God's forsaken me, but rather that God allowed it in his perfect, sovereign, wise, and loving plan. And he has a purpose in this. 
He's using it for my ultimate good. And even if I die because of it, to live is Christ and to die is, is my gain. So, so God protects us in his ways for his purposes. We don't test him. Rather, we trust him. We don't presume on promises. Rather, we trust for protection, whatever that looks like. Knowing his ways are always right and they're always best. So, so what we see in, in this third temptation is that we don't put God to the test and force him to act on the promise. Because maybe my view of protection, of what's right and what's loving, maybe my view of what's good for me actually isn't good enough. Our ways are not God's ways. His view of goodness and kindness are higher than our understanding. And our Father always knows best. So our call to this temptation, and really all the three temptations of Christ, is to love and to trust God as our good and perfect Heavenly Father. We let Him be in charge, and we crucify that pride that's so natural to us. And it says, no, I know best. I'm the one who should be in charge here. I should tell God how to dispense his gifts, and he should follow after my lead. Rather, we submit to, and we worship, and we trust God as our Father. I mean, this seems basic, doesn't it? This seems like day one Christianity. And yet, this temptation to put God to the test so often creeps up in our lives. It's a real temptation. We want signs and verifiable evidence of God's blessing. Listen, if God wants to provide a sign in his grace, by all means he can. I mean, that's what we talked about in Sunday school with Ahaz, right? God is gracious. God does what he wants. Sometimes he proves himself. But we don't get to demand a sign. I mean, Jesus said later in Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. It's those whose hearts are not faithful to God that put them to the test. And listen, I get it. This is, this is a hard message, not to understand, but to live in, right? The message that we don't get to drive the train, that we ride in the caboose that, that the Lord is steering, right? I mean, we're Americans. We believe that, that you know, these truths are self-evident, that all men are created equal, and we have endowed rights from our Creator. Rights like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Therefore, God has no right to touch those things. He can't touch our life or our liberty or our pursuit of happiness. We're in the driver's seat. We're in control. We're calling the shots. We're making the decisions. And so we try and manipulate situations so that we get what we want and God follows suit. Right? I prayed about this business deal. So God, if it goes sideways, that's on you. You better bless this if you want the glory. Putting God to the test. I mean, you think Satan's not whispering this temptation to us today? You think, you know, after Jesus defeated him, he's given up on a strategy that's worked since the beginning of time? We constantly seek out signs, seeking to be in charge. God, if you do this for me, then I'll turn my life around for you. Just give me the sign, right? It's not enough for us to know that God is our Father. We demand he prove it over and over. We walk by sight and not by faith. But that's not what the Bible calls us to. And Satan loves this about us. He loves to exploit it and calls us to question God and his goodness. 
He wants to, us to demand signs. I mean, aren't we all drawn to the stories of Christians, of pastors, who, you know, talk about God speaking audibly to them, you know, always in a still small voice, um, telling them what to do? Because for some reason, we don't think God's word and his spirit are enough to guide us. We always want something audible, verifiable, physical. We want a sign. I mean, surely God could have set up the world differently, but he didn't. He's okay with uncertainty. He's okay with doubt. But those things should lead us to God, not away from him and to unbelief. One author writes, Imagine, just for a minute, that an angel appears to you and promises that you can know with certainty the existence of God, the truth of the gospel, and your eternal standing with Christ. All you have to do is jump from the highest point of the temple and God will catch you. I wonder how many of us in the darkest night of our souls would take that plunge. One of the, one of the hardest acts of faith is simply trusting. Trusting that God, not ourselves, is and should be in control. That it's a very good thing that he is. And this complete trust, even without complete understanding, is the best and it's the safest path for us that God's protection, whatever it looks like, will come through, but that we don't get to dictate the terms of it. So as, as we close here, look at our final verse, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus stayed strong, and the devil gave up. He finished these wilderness temptations, and he left him. Not, not forever, but until it would be strategic for him to come back. I mean, he left until an opportune time. This scene was an opportune time. Jesus is hungry. He's weak. At the very start of this ministry, maybe Satan can, you know, set the course of one that doesn't trust the Father, one of presumption rather than submission. At watershed moments throughout Jesus' ministry, Satan shows up again. Like, um, like when the disciples recognize Christ as the Messiah, we hear his influence in Peter's words, hey, you'll never be crucified, which Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. This is how the devil works. He fades into the background until an opportune time, so you don't notice him, so you let your guard down, and then when it's strategic, he strikes. He's coming for you. He's coming for me. He's coming for our churches, and he does it at an opportune time. But Luke 4, even in warning us of the devil's schemes and temptations, it should put some steel in our bones. It should give us courage and bravery to fight the devil. Because Luke 4 isn't primarily concerned with showing us strategies to fight Satan, you know, how to interpret the psalm so we can, you know, reject, G, uh, reject Satan's poor interpretations. Rather, what Luke wants to show off is the magnificence of our Savior. Countless men have fallen prey to the devil, but only Jesus has fought the devil and won. We have this text, you know, to showcase power and victory of a Messiah. Here at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus defeats the devil by choosing to trust God 
and obey rather than demanding his own way. And at the end of his earthly ministry, upon the cross, he does the same exact thing. Through his death and resurrection, we see Jesus defeating Satan once and for all by submitting to God's good and eternal plan for him, even if that means, you know, he does not get the long life promised of the faithful in Psalm 91. Rather, he gets the eternal life reigning as God's son. And so in our trials and our temptations, <clears throat> when the devil comes at an opportune time in our lives, we shouldn't think that we in ourselves have the power to fight him. Rather, we should see that we have Christ who has already defeated him. In repentance and in faith, we run to Christ in help. Or as Hebrews 4 tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. Thank you.